In our current life group study, the little book, The Gospel by Ray Orland, a couple of weeks ago, um, at least with the schedule our, our life group is in, we were looking at some of the Beatitudes that I read to you just a few minutes ago out of Matthew. And his point in that particular chapter, Ortland's point, was that in our world, in our culture, our culture and our world's leaders and just the systems of the world lead and govern by a different set of standards, a different Beatitudes, if you will, from what our king gave us there in Matthew. And those Beatitudes are contrasted when we kind of put them beside each other. Um, I read them, but listen to them again. Our king says, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Our culture says, blessed are the entitled, for they get their way. Our king says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our culture says, blessed are the carefree, for they're comfortable. Our king says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The culture says, blessed are the pushy, for they win. Our king says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. The culture says, blessed are the self-satisfied. They don't need anything. Our king says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The culture says, Blessed are the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Our king says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The culture says, blessed are those who don't get caught, for they look good. Our king says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The culture says, blessed are the argumentative, they get the last word. Finally, our king says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The culture says, blessed are the winners, for they get their way. After Saul's death, David continues to exemplify, not perfectly, but he does continue to exemplify what it looks like to be patient and just wait on God. He exemplifies what it looks like to be prayerful and seek God's guidance. He exemplifies what it looks like to show grace even to those who would be considered his enemies. This has stood constantly in stark contrast to Saul and to his kingdom and his efforts to kill David. And it stands in stark contrast to Abner and the king he put in place, Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Because you see, God has decreed that David will be his king, and they know this, but they're still trying to counter that. So what we've seen over these last couple of chapters, and we'll still see it over chapter 4 and a little part of chapter 5, is, is what it looks like when man's politics and his pragmatism and his personal ambition and his desire for revenge, and when, when those things seem to rule the day, then we see what happens. And even David who I hope we understand is not at all perfect. Even in this passage today, we see David begin to exhibit some of the cultural policies of his day, some of the cultural practices that are in the end going to be a source of heartbreak and division. 
So David's got flaws. We'll see that. But in spite of all that, God is building his kingdom. He is fulfilling his purposes. And what we see in today's chapter continues to point us to David's perfect son who is coming, the Lord Jesus. So before we look at chapter 3, I want you to look up on the screen at this another chiasm, okay? So you've kind of been getting a little bit of Hebrew, a little bit of Hebrew literary knowledge as we've worked our way through this passage. Remember, a chiasm is that literary tool used by the authors to help us see a big picture and put our focus where it needs to be. And really from chapter 2 all the way through the beginning of chapter 5 is a chiasm, if you will, a structure that shows us David's reign and how that is going to be established. And so the passage begins in chapter 2 and will end in chapter 5 with this focus on David reigning in Hebron. And then you see on that chart that's on the screen how Ishbosheth, this rival, is put in place at the beginning. And at the end, this rival is removed as he loses his life. So that frames that inner portion. And then Abner, the commander of Saul's army, is at the center here in these chapters, in chapter 2 and 3. His military strategy, his struggle for power, his politics, and how all those, in a sense, just end in a failure for Abner, personal failure, if you will. But God is still establishing his kingdom. So let's pick it up in chapter 3. This is a long narrative passage of Scripture. And these long narratives are, are hard. They're, they're hard to read in one lump. It just it, It's a lot of text. Um, it's easy for us to sometimes get caught in the weeds and miss the big picture. I love preaching and teaching narratives, um, but they're challenging. They're challenging to hear. They're challenging. And so let's just pray that the Lord would help us work through this and, and see what we need to see as it applies to us. Because this word, while it's historical and it's old, it's timeless and it's relevant to us. So let's pray. Lord, we do ask that over this word. We thank you that it is... Your perfect inspired word to us, it is without error, and it is filled with purpose and intent that is timeless for your people. And so we ask you, Lord, to to take it, and again, as, as we've seen, as I prayed earlier, Lord, let the seeds be planted in fertile hearts and be fruitful. And I pray that uh, for your name's sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. So let's look at this text, starting in chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, the first 11 verses, and then we'll look at it, and we'll kind of work our way through it that way, all right? So follow along with me as I read, starting in chapter 1 of chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And the sons and sons were born to David at Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. And the second was Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmi, king of Geshur. And the fourth was Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth was Sheptahai the son of Abital, and the sixth Ethram, 
of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Eah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And then Abner, very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, and to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with, the fault, with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So here in this first section, you have this picture of personal ambition and cultural compromise is the way I've summarized it. And it is, as we will see, a recipe. It's a recipe for division today and ultimately devastation if we look down the road. So it says kind of a summary statement there in verse 1. A long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Those who support Saul are working and striving to see that his family stays in power. And those who support David are working and striving and fighting to see that he gains the power. And it says that David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul was getting weaker and weaker. So this is a theological statement of reality first off. God is accomplishing exactly what he promised, right? He promised David would be on the throne. And so David is getting stronger and stronger, just as God had promised. But this is also not just a theological statement, it's a cultural statement, a cultural commentary of reality. And that's what we have starting there in verse 2. It's a cultural understanding, not just of growing stronger and stronger, but how? You grow stronger and stronger in that day and time. And so it tells us here, the narrator gives us this account of David's sons that are born to him here at Hebron. We could, I'm not going to take the time, go over to First Chronicles and see that the list is long. And see that there's a lot of children born to David by a lot of different wives and concubines. And so as we see this being spelled out for us here, there's not a commentary on whether this is good or bad coming from this passage in Third Samuel. Excuse me, in First Samuel. There's not a commentary here that really tells us. And in the culture of David's day, if you wanted to gain strength in that geographic region, it was gained lots of times, not just through military strength, but through intermarriage. If you want to be an ally with that kingdom to the north, you marry into that kingdom in the north. And that strengthens that alliance. So lots of times when we see this taking place in the lives of the kings of those days, and there's parts of the world where it's still done today, lust is driving the relationship, but it's not physical lust, it's a lust for power. And so David is gathering wives, and he's having sons. 
And I'm not going to take the time to discuss each of these marriages, each of these wives and each of these sons. Suffice it to say that three of them, Abnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, will in time be a source of pain and heartbreak, devastation, and division on David personally, on David's family, and on the kingdom. The seeds are being sown here for devastation to come. But it's culturally acceptable. Not only that, Absalom's mother is the the daughter of a foreign king. She's not an Israelite. She's not a daughter of the covenant. She's a foreigner. So David is doing what many of the kings of his day would do. I've, I've mentioned this little book before called Rembrandt in the Wind by Russ Ramsey. It's a wonderful book. I encourage you to pick it up. It, and especially if you love art like Susan and I do. But it's a great little book. Just gospel solid. And Russ Ramsey in one of the chapters on Michelangelo's sculptor of David says this. He writes, there are cracks in David's ankles. For more than 500 years, nearly 6,000 pounds of marble have been pushing down on David's legs. One day, David will fall. In all likelihood, he will ironically be taken down by a stone. But not the force of a stone flung at him, but the limitations of the very stone from which he is carved. He will collapse under his own weight because of his own flaws. One of the many fractures will cause a catastrophic failure in the compressive integrity of the marble. The weight of his upper body will shift, and the pressure and torque and momentum will finish the job. David has cracks in his ankles. He has cracks in his character. And the text doesn't comment on it here, but this will be a major problem. And the problem here is that what he does is culturally acceptable but not kingdom acceptable. The text is clear in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember when David was called to be king. Excuse me, back up all the way when the people demanded that Samuel give them a king. God had not prohibited that they have a king. He had gave clearer instructions on what that king was to be like. Listen as I read from Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. That's exactly what they said. Then the Lord said, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers who you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return there again. And in verse 17 it says, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. What David did was culturally acceptable, but it was not acceptable to God. And we will see the consequences of that. So there's this conflict going on between the followers of Saul and the followers of David. And in the middle of this is a man who is demonstrating political prowess. He's smart. And he is also opportunistically very ambitious. 
And the text makes it clear. While this war is going on, Abner is doing what? Making himself strong. He's taking advantage of the situation. And the problem with Abner is that he is driven, but he's driven wrongly. He's not driven by the promises of God and the purposes of God. He's driven by personal ambition because he wants to see himself lifted up. He has influence and he knows he has influence and he takes advantage of it. And he's accused here by Ishbosheth of being underhanded, but again, doing something that in the culture would be acceptable. Here's what one historian said. In regard to this whole idea that Ishbosheth says to him, you've gone into one of my father's concubines. You've had this relationship with this woman who was a part of my father's harem, basically is what he's saying. And this historian said, the man who took over the harem of a deceased king thereby asserted his claim to succession of the throne. So Ishbosheth is accusing him of wanting to take the throne and doing it this way. I think that's crazy. The reason I say that is because if Abner wanted the throne, he put that weakling in the throne in the first place. If he wanted it, he'd just take it. He's got the military strength to do it. And whether or not he actually did this thing is never said. Now, he makes an emphatic denial, does he not? He says no. And he's indignant about it. In fact, the word he uses there is hesed, covenant love. He said, I've shown nothing but covenant love. Steadfast love to your father's house, to your father's brothers, and to his friends. He doesn't include Ishbosheth in this. <laughs> and I have not turned you into David, which obviously implied I could have easily done it. And now you're charging me something about a woman? And then he makes this pledge. And what he says here is, you know, uh, he recognizes, wait a minute. I may have my wagon hooked to the wrong horse. My pony's not winning this race, and he ought to know that because he put his pony in. I mean, he's the one that placed him there. And so he is self-confident, and he assesses something here that I think, I didn't really see this much in commentaries. I just think it's striking that basically what Abner says here is, I'm going to accomplish for David what God told him he would do. You see that? I'm going to accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. I'm going to put the kingdom in his lap. All of Israel and all of Judah. And Ishbosheth has nothing to say because he's a wimp. And he's been put in place by Abner. We could probably take more time to do that. It's just important at church that we recognize one thing that I think is worth noting here. The spirit of Abner is alive and well today, and it's alive and well in the church. It's alive and well among Christians who are, who are willing to, through ambition and through what we see as political prowess, yeah, God says he's going to do it, but you know what? I think I can help if I take it this way. Nah, I don't think so. Be aware, church, the spirit of Abner is still alive and well. Now let's pick up the text next, starting in verse 12, and see these three realities, politics, rivalry, and revenge. And as we look at the politics and the rivalry and the revenge in this next section, 
Just recognize that worldly methods and worldly motivations do not further the kingdom of God. Verse 12. Abner sent messengers to David. So this wasn't an idle threat on his part. He's made a decision. I'm changing sides. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, To whom does the land belong? Make a covenant, excuse me, make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, David, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have seen David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, I mean. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron, all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. And when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So Abner, so excuse me, David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So, politics, rivalry, and revenge are going to be seen in this. Worldly methods and motives work here, at least to some degree. But the point here is that the kingdom God is going to establish is not going to be brought about this way. God will bring it about, but not the way these men seem to be set on doing it. First, let's look... At, a, at an example of the politics, okay? In verses 12 through 16, Abner comes and he makes an offer to David, and David makes a demand. Abner says, I have the ability implied in this. <laughs> I have the ability to bring all of Israel to you. And David says, all right, good. I have a requirement. And David makes a demand. David says, I want my wife back. I want Michael back. And it goes on following text there to give us a little more understanding. You remember this from earlier. Saul had promised her to David. And his motive in promising her to David was to get David killed. Because the bridal price was the foreskins of these Philistines. Well, David did way better than what Saul had asked for. Saul's probably disappointed to see that David does indeed earn Saul's daughter in marriage, and David gives her. But then later she's taken back. It's, a, it's another just twisted turn of this. But David's motives here, I believe, 
are probably more pragmatic and political than they are just romanticism. Michael's not going to have a very good future with David. Their relationship is going to be strained. She's not mentioned again in the rest of the chapter, even when he has this huge state dinner. I think David here, just in my opinion, is doing the same thing that he did when he married the daughter of the king of Geshur. She's the daughter of one of the Benjaminites. Saul was a man of the tribe of Benjamin. David doesn't have the tribe of Benjamin under his wing right now. And even though he's been offered that, David wants Michael back because she's Saul's daughter. And in that sense, I think that that's going to seal up. That's going to strengthen that relationship. That's just, yeah, maybe there's, there's love there. I don't know, but he demands that she be brought back. And Abner comes through on his delivery, but David doesn't wait on that. David undercuts him. He undercuts his authority, undercuts him in every way, it seems, because he goes directly by his messengers, David does, to Ishbosheth and says, Bring me this wife. And it's a sad picture to me. She's taken from her husband. I, I just kind of picture him running along down the road somehow behind her, crying that she be brought back. And Ishbosheth, strong man, just says, Go home. Cold. But it's politics. It's power. It seems to be the way. What about rivalry? Well, in verse 20 and following, Abner comes with 20 men, and David is glad to see him, and there's this big state dinner put on. And David, Abner comes. I'm, I'm going to fulfill what I promised. I will go and I'll gather all Israel. So he's, he's had these conversations and he says, I'm going to go finalize the deal. I'm going to go seal the deal. And it says that David sent him away and he went in peace. In fact, three times in three verses, we see that word. David sent him away and he went in peace. He sent him away and he went in peace or he had gone in peace. It says in verse 23. 22, rather. And then in 23, when Joab comes back on the scene, he is told he was sent away in peace. That's important because David has brought this man into his palace, into his presence, and basically promised him security. You're here under my care. And when he sends him back, he's sent away implied under the care of David, under the protection of David. But as this party is going on, as this state dinner is going on, we see this, this word, just then. Do you see that in verse 22? Like, uh-oh, Joab just showed up. And commentators kind of disagree. Did David do this on purpose while Joab was out of town because he knew he would not agree? Or is it just coincidence that while this is going on and as soon as David sends Abner back... Joab shows up, but he does show up. And they've been on a raiding party. They've been on a mission. Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. So in verse 23, when Joab shows up and he's been told what went on, man, he is not happy at all. He says in verse 24, what have you done? Now remember, this is David's cousin. These are, these, this is a relative. What have you done? Abner came to you. He's a spy. 
The only reason he came to you was so he would know what you're doing and so he would know your goings and your comings. So Abner steps back into the scene and he is not trusting of Abner. He is not trusting of David. He is not trusting of anything that's gone on. He accuses Abner of being deceitful. But then notice what he does. After he had left town under the safety of David, in verse 20, excuse me, in verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. And David did not know about it. So it seems that Abner has sent messengers, I think probably under the guise of, wait a minute, David, David needs you back. Official business, we need you to come back to town. It seems that he sends messengers to Abner, you need to come back here. And when Abner returned to Hebron in verse 27, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak to him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died. And notice what it says there in the end of verse 25. Why did he do this? For the blood of Ashahil, his brother. So here, revenge raises its ugly head. And this deed is made worse by two things. One, I've already said, he was under the protection of David. David had brought him in peace and sent him away in peace. And in a sense, David's reputation, the, the stability, if you will, the integrity of David's reign is at risk here if something were going to happen to this man. And Joab doesn't care about David. And so he brings him back. And then he brings him back to the city of Hebron. And it's interesting that in Joshua chapter 20, when God is dispersing the land, Hebron is to be what is called a city of safety. It's to be a place where technically you can come if you're convicted of a crime, specifically manslaughter, and find safekeeping in that city. Now, Abner hasn't committed manslaughter. What Abner did was on the field of battle. Abner's Death, the death of, of Joab's brother took place on the field of battle. But not so this one. He's brought back into town, taken privately into this out of the way place, and he's stabbed in the belly and murdered. And it's disgraceful. And David is quick to distance himself from it. Because a lot is on the line here. This is a potential political crisis, it's a scandal. This is, this is part of Saul's army. This is Saul's commander that has just lost his life on David's watch. There's a lot at stake here. Look at verses 28 and following. It says that David did not know about it. That's clear to us in verse 26. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner 
because he had put their brother Asael to death in the field at Gibeon. Revenge raises its ugly head and David is quick to separate himself from it. David wants none of it. And so he puts this distance between him and what has gone on there. It's an interesting response to me. It seems in some way very limited. It seems like David is showing great restraint here. Is it for political reasons? Is it for personal reasons? Again, I think we have to be careful to read more into the text than what the text tells us. But the text does tell us something if we pick up the reading in verse 31. Follow along with me through the end of the chapter. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier, or followed the casket. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one who falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. And then, in verse 35, Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all of the people took notice of it. And it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So, in response to all this, three things are left. Guilt, honor, and gentleness. And the attitudes and the actions of David here point us to our good and gentle King Jesus. That's obviously where this is going. In verses 31 and 32... Guilt is, in one sense, not really pronounced, but laid upon Joab. This is in some ways kind of funny to me, probably just my twisted sense of humor. But for some reason, David does not charge Joab with the murder that he committed. He doesn't charge him. And some say that David is aware that Joab still has enough military support through the army that this would be seen in a very negative light. And because David's reign is young and still in some ways in a not very strong position that David recognized it would not be wise for me to charge this man with murder. He still has a lot of influence. But for whatever reason, he doesn't charge him. But he publicly shames him. And he has a state funeral for Abner. And not only does he have a state funeral for Abner, but he puts an honor guard in front of it. And the uniforms of these honor guards who are in front of this funeral procession are the, are, is the garb of mourning. They are to tear their clothes. They're to put on sackcloth. They are to demonstrate shame and in some sense sorrow. And the ones leading this honor guard 
is none other than the one who took the man's life. I think it's kind of funny. David says to Joab, okay, you're going to lead this funeral procession. And you're going to be in mourning as you do it. And you're going to be in a very humble place as you lead this funeral procession for the very man whose life you took. It's just interesting that this is David's strategy. I think it's great. But David follows up as the chief mourner. It says David followed the bier. So not only is he in a sense humbling Abner, but David demonstrates great humility himself. And as he engineers this state funeral, it is David who, by the way, is this is the first time he's called King David. King David, probably wearing the regalia of the king, demonstrating in many ways, not only is is the one leading the procession, Joab, being dishonored, but David is honoring Abner, following him as the king, following him in mourning. And they buried him there at Hebron. So. David demonstrates grief, but he also voices it. Look at his lament. David lamented. David does a lot of lamenting. (laughs) There's a lot of sadness in David's life. And he does a good job voicing it and writing it out. And, And in this lament, look at verse 33. Should Abner die as a fool dies? The word there, fool, is the word in Hebrew, Nabal. Remember Nabal? A few chapters earlier, who was a fool, and his name said so, and he acted like a fool, and he died like a fool. God put him to death. David says, Abner was no fool, and the way he died is not a reflection of the man that he was, David says. And Abner was not a prisoner who deserved to be executed. Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. He, he died in a way that a prisoner might die, but he was not a prisoner. And he said, as one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. So Abner was not a fool. The way he died is not a demonstration of the man he really was. And Abner was not a prisoner. He didn't deserve to die like a prisoner being executed. And Abner was not... He was the victim of wickedness, it says. Wickedness has befallen you. He was the victim of a crime. You know, sometimes those who think they're furthering the ways of the kingdom are so contrary to the ways of the kingdom. And it's not until we look through the scriptures' vantages, vantage point that we see that. You know what? The, the spirit here... Of Joab was alive in Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, was it not? When Peter pulled his sword and struck the servant, cut off his ear, Peter thought, Jesus needs help. This kingdom of his is not going to come about. So he pulls his sword and strikes. And the king says to Peter, Put it back. Put your sword back in your sheath. Shall I not keep drink the cup, he says, that my father has given me to drink? He'd already told Peter before, get behind me, Satan. 
The way you think this kingdom's going to come in is not by way of the sword. It's not by way of politics. It's not by way of men's power. So the spirit of Joab is alive and well in Peter. It's still alive and well today. Which is, I think, the reason why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The ways of the kingdom are not the ways of the world. And David then seems to demonstrate a goodness is is what the word is here. There's a genuineness that is recognized by David. Notice what it says there in verse 35. It says all the people. Notice what it says there in verse 36. All the people took notice of it. Verse 37. All the people and all Israel. Listen, even the family of Saul. Even the family of Abner. Remember, those 20 men that came with Abner saw him come in under the peace sign of David. Saw him come come in under the protection of David. And they saw him murdered in the city of David there in Hebron. But those 20 men went back home saying, David did not do this. All of Israel, all of the people recognized that the king was not pleased with what had happened. The king had not had a hand in what had gone on in this escapade. And what they saw, it says, pleased them. Literally, it was good in their eyes, is what it says in the Hebrew language. What it says is everything that the king did was good in their eyes. It's like David at this point in time can do no wrong. Everything he sees, everything they see is good. And in his grief, and in his words, and in his actions, they saw the goodness of their king. And David then, in private... Notice what it says in verse 38. I believe David called this is this is not in public eye. He says to his servants, David seems to be saying to his inner circle, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. Now, if you're using a King James Here's what it's going to read in that verse. I am this day, David said, weak, though anointed king. These men, the son of Zeruiah, be too hard for me. The NIV, David says, though I am anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. So what's going on here? Those translations are different, are they not? Is there a difference between gentleness and weakness? Is there a difference between being severe and being hard or too strong? Is David confessing weakness here? Or is David just making a statement about his heart's attitude and just the fact that he is, as it says at the end of the sentence, 
The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Is David here saying, I can't handle these, you know, I'm just confessing, these guys are stronger than me in this regard. Or is David saying, I'm going to have to trust God with this. I'm going to put this in God's hands. God will repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. I want to give David the benefit of the doubt here. I want to, I want to look at him as gentle. I want to look at him as showing restraint as he's done in the past. So I'm not going to tell you how you need to see those particular verses. Again here, I don't know that the point here is on David's character anyway. Sure it is in this passage. But in the big picture, this gentle, indeed weak king is pointing us forward to a gentle, weak king whose ankles are not flawed, who has no cracks in his character. And who will not be brought down in some self-destructive way. There are two contradictory truths about this king to come. One of those truths is seen in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. When the seventh angel blew blew his trumpet and the loud voices in heaven said, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. This king will reign forever and ever. Is that contradictory to what this king said in Matthew eleven twenty eight? Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This king said, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Is that contradictory? No. That is our king. That is our new greater Moses who went up on the mountaintop and came down with a new law and a new picture of what it means to live for Christ in a world that's political and power hungry and ambition driven. And it is not the way of the culture. It is not the way of the world. In this passage, we see a picture of the negative and long lasting consequences of personal ambition, rivalry, Revenge and politics. And lots of times actions that are taken in the name of the king, in the name of God's kingdom, are not at all compatible with the king. And and church, we just need to be attentive to that and sensitive to that and aware of that as we look at what goes on around us and what is said around us. Because I'm fearful that in a lot of times and in a lot of situations in our culture... The, the, all of the people around us are not able to do what all of the people of Israel were able to do that day when they looked at their king and saw that he was good and that he was a reflection of God. Because my fear is that often when we as God's people think we need to help God out using the schemes and the means of the culture around us, then I'm not sure that people in America look at the American church And think much of King Jesus. And we need to be very, very careful about that. We need to be sensitive 
to the realities of what the character of our king is like and what he says about how he's going to bring his kingdom into place. The spirit of Joab and Abner is alive and well, and we need to be on guard. We need to pray for each other. Specifically, I believe we need to pray for each other what Paul writes in Colossians, and I'll end with this. If you want to turn there in chapter 1, it might be a good thing to highlight and put in an index card that you use in your prayer journal. Paul says in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 1, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual understanding, and excuse me, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And look at what he prays next. Underline this. So that, so that as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Pray for each other, church. Pray for the church in America. Pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God has given us. That we would bear fruit that's reflective of the character of our King. That our good work would demonstrate an increasing knowledge of God, not an increasing knowledge of the culture and its ways. He goes on to say, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. This will not be easy. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. My last point of application is, has He done that for you? Has King Jesus taken you as a, as a humble, repentant sinner and just said, Lord, You are King. And I confess my sin and I confess my shortcomings. I confess that I've not lived for you, but I've lived for myself. And by simply coming and professing Jesus as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and submitting to his lordship, this is a beautiful picture of him just taking us out of the kingdom of darkness and putting us in his kingdom. He redeems us and forgives us. Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you know that redemption and that forgiveness? I invite you to that today. Let's pray. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day, Lord Jesus, you tell us clearly the kingdoms of this world will be yours visibly, powerfully, eternally. And so again, we pray for your kingdom to come. And for your will to be done on this earth as it is in heaven through the hearts and lives of those who have submitted to King Jesus. So God, we pray for that to come about. Thank you for this picture of how you're going to grow your kingdom in spite of our faults, our failures, our ambitions, our rivalries. But God, help us, I pray, to be sensitive to that. May your spirit do a work of conviction in each of our hearts. And God, may we seek above all else to walk with you in faithfulness, to honor you in every way. Let our light so shine that people will see your glory in the good works, the good words, the good fellowship, the gospel lives of your people. And we pray that for the sake of Jesus.
and for the furtherance of his kingdom. Amen.